Welcome to Bill. This is Maggie, and I'm really excited today. We have a special guest in the house, Richard Banfield. He is the CEO and co-founder of Fresh Told Soil, a leading user interface design and experience agency. And as we've heard from a couple of other of the authors before, he is the final co-author of the product leadership book, The Manual That I Live My Life By. A mentor at Techstars, an advisor and lecturer at the Boston Startup School, and many more. So welcome, Richard. Thank you so much, Maggie. So Richard actually just gave an amazing talk here at Drift on high-performance teams and what makes high-performance teams. So what I would love to hear is sort of your quick overview on those four pieces that help create high-performance teams, then we can kind of go from there. So I'll do them in reverse order. They're definitely organized around something that's very motivating. So a vision or a mission that's worthwhile, that gets you out of bed, that's motivating, but is also somewhat ambiguous and probably somewhat unattainable as well. I often use the example of JFK's speech going to the moon because that's a good one. They have no idea how they were going to get there, Mm -hmm. but it seemed like a big, crazy idea that would get people motivated. And that's really what it does. It aligns the skills of the people that are potentially going to be working on that project Mm -hmm. around that. And then it also serves to organize who's going to be involved and who's going to not. So when you put out a big idea, what you get immediately is people say, that sounds awesome. And you're a nutcase. And that immediately helps you figure out which are the people that you need to continue to work with and which Mm -hmm. are the people you can ignore. And it's important because you need that divisiveness to help you find out who's going to be the group that's going to be part of your success. Mm -hmm. And you also need to know who you need to ignore. So you mean by who you need to ignore, which customers you need to ignore, which potential candidates you need to ignore for hiring, the whole thing. Element number one is that you need a big mission. Within that, you need product vision that's very specific to each product. So if you're a Tesler and your big mission is to accelerate the transformation to renewable energy then or sustainable energy, that's very different from we're going to make an electric car for this particular group of people. Right. So even within the car manufacturing scope of what they do, they have different products for different audiences. Mm -hmm. And that's important. So the mission, even though it's crazy, doesn't mean that the product vision has to be crazy. The product vision has to be very consumer or customer centric Mm -hmm. and still aligned with that goal. Basically, someone is setting the mission, but then as a product team, you have to start to translate that into reality. And that's part of what the vision helps you do. Right. Okay. And the product team is normally the one that's initiating the conversation around what that product vision should be because they're the mm-hmm. ones talking to the customer. Right. So it might be seeded by the founders or the executives and say, hey, we think this is an area of opportunity. But it's really once you start interacting with a customer that you can then say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Or that was an awful idea. Let's not do that. Right. Or we can change this or we can pivot. Mm-hmm. The next thing is to have all of the people in your organization aligned around things like we're talking the same language, we have the same values, like jargon and stuff like that. Jargon can be just as bad as like racism. It's a way of getting people out of the conversation as much as it is bringing people closer to the conversation. So you've got to have a language that speaks to what's relevant to the customer, but also how are you going to align the team? Mm -hmm. And that language is normally built on the values that the team is going to be organizing around. Again, starts with the executive, they come up with the original values, Mm -hmm. but then the team itself is going to say, well, actually at our product level, those values aren't as relevant. We're going to craft things that work better for us. And there's a language that goes along with that. So I use the example of the Sky cycling team that uses marginal gains as their signaling language. Mm -hmm. What's important to us? What do we care about? Again, not a mathematically correct idea, this marginal gains thing, but it works well as a moniker for how am I going to treat you? How am I going to treat my fellow teammates? How am I going to treat the public? How are we going to respond? to crisis. So all of those language elements or signaling elements are an important part of high-performing teams. And again, you start to see it when 
we saw the video of the Formula One team yeah. where they are so well aligned and signaling each other in such a non-verbal way mm-hmm. that they can continue to do their job even though they have a full-on fireproof overall right. and helmet on and they can't actually see or hear each other, but they can still actually do their job. Yeah, I had a question about that. So I loved that video. It was really cool to see them perfectly working together as a team. Mm. But you also, in the talk, you had a couple of examples of athletes and athletic teams working together. But both of those two things have an element of practice built into what they do. And the thing I've been thinking about a lot is when you look at a high-performing team, especially in a work context, how do you bring that element of like practice because I think it's really easy as a former athlete myself say, okay, this is practice. I'm practicing. It's fine. I can break all the movements down really slowly and work on each one of them. But then I have race day. Mm-hmm. But at work, every day is race day. So like, how have you seen teams sort of handle that? So I would disagree. I don't think every day is race day. I think race day equivalence in a business is when you have crisis. Something horrible happens. I think every other day is more attuned to that idea of practice day. Mm-hmm. And I think building a practice the way that you do in athletics is exactly the way you would do it here. It's just not familiar to how organizations tend to work. Mm-hmm. They'll give you onboarding. They'll give you a little bit of training. And right. then you're off to the races and everything mm-hmm. else is learned on the job. Mm-hmm. We've discovered that these teams work really well when they keep going back to practice mindset or to mm-hmm. learning mindset and saying, we actually don't know whether we're doing it the right way. We need to practice that. So they take time, just like you at Drift take time to read books and listen yeah. to podcasts and actually teach yourself. Mm-hmm. These high-performing teams take time to become masters of their own domain by practicing, whether it's within a guild or a functional area mm-hmm. or as a team. Those teams are actually calendaring time saying, look, on Mondays, we're going to do this. And we're actually going to drop the work schedule and focus on being practiced so that we can be better when crisis happens or when ship day happens. So then what's part three? Part three is one of the things that we noticed is that the mindset is going to be quite different Mm -hmm. between a high-performing team and a regular team. Uh, The high-performing teams have firstly this idea that they're not playing in a finite way like a sport would be played, where you're just trying to get through the first or second half of a match and you're trying to get points on the board, but rather that it's this infinite game. You're Mm -hmm. always trying to get better, that there's mastery beyond where you are at every step of the way. And that the game that should be played means that you're always going to beat your competition because your competition is going to be seeking for that quarterly result or for that event. Maybe it's an IPO, maybe it's an acquisition. Mm -hmm. Whereas you're not seeking that event, you're seeking for what is the best possible outcome for this brand? What's the best possible outcome for this experience, for this customer? James Kass, who wrote The Difference Between Finite and Infinite Games, talks about how the Vietnam War is actually one of those, where the Viet Cong were fighting the infinite game. Right. This is our home. We've got mm-hmm. nowhere else to go. We have to just keep fighting until we're dead. Right. Whereas the U.S. were fighting a finite game, which is like we have to occupy this particular space. So mm-hmm. that's the difference and the mentality changes the nature of how you show up every day. And along with that, I think, is also just the open versus closed mindset, which Carol Dweck talks a lot about in her books, which is mm-hmm. are we going to be open to new learning or are we going to just assume that we know everything? Right. And that open mindset, the idea that you're not perfect, that you could fail, mm-hmm. you may not have the answer. You, know, yeah. you can say to your subordinates, oh, I don't know the answer to that, even mm-hmm. when they expect you to do it that's an important set of issues that you have to tackle there right and then the fourth thing are we creating safe psychological places for Mm -hmm. people to be who they need to be i mean this is a currently a gender issue it's a race issue it's not just a business issue but i think within business and context of what we talk about today safe psychological space isn't like a room where you can go and talk to a therapist Mm -hmm. about who's irritating you at work like they have on that show billions but rather do i feel like i can express my opinion or i can share what i think 
without feeling like I'm going to be repressed by a manager's opinion or by some loud mouth in the room. Like, right. is there a place for us to share our opinions with the caveats that even that I can share my opinion, it doesn't mean that everybody has to listen to my opinion in that kind of consensus-driven way. Mm-hmm. We're not looking for consensus. Right. Collaboration is not consensus. We can right. disagree. Maggie, you can tell me your opinion and I can tell you mine and we can have a big disagreement about that. Mm-hmm. But we need to have the opportunity to share that. And I think right. the problem with current situations is people go to work and they don't feel like they can express those opinions because they've got a structure or a manager or a situation that doesn't allow for that to happen. So mm-hmm. safe psychological spaces is something that managers and leaders of high performing teams work a lot on and it's never done because you're always bringing new people in so Mm -hmm. every time you bring a new person you've got a change in dynamic right a new person with new opinions and new relatables to bring into the conversation how do you make sure that those people feel safe and that the people that were interacting in a safe way don't feel like they're being adjusted in some way that's negative right I mean, that's exactly my question is, how do you do that, especially in an environment where maybe you're not the leader, you're not the executive, you don't see yourself as the person who has the power, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. What's your advice for people from what you've seen in your research to how to start to influence that and create that trust? So you guys do it without probably even realizing some of it is social. Mm-hmm. taking time to share a coffee or a beer or right. actually go off-site and do these things. Those are different quantums of the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, having a coffee with a one-on-one teammate, yep. that's important. Make time for that. Having a beer with the five people on your team, mm-hmm. that's important. Doing an off-site once a month or quarter, whatever it is that's relevant to your cadence, mm-hmm. that's important as well. So you deliberately create a cadence of socialization And then the manager needs to insert themselves in ways that just seeds the conversation in a more vulnerable, organized way than a social conversation would be. So you you and I talking about over a cup of coffee, we talk about, you know, athletics and kids and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Well, maybe if the manager was in the room, they say, I want you guys to share maybe an embarrassing moment, showing you that I'm actually a human being because I can express the fact that I'm not perfect and that I've got all these weaknesses. And then you share the same thing and you say, actually, I'm not perfect either. And now that we've got all that shit out the way, right. like, okay, well, yeah. now <laughs> we're it, yeah. much better people because we don't have to worry about you finding out about my weakness. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you what my weakness is. Right. I'm telling you what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And in doing so, I'm also building trust. Vulnerability is the gateway drug to trust. Right. Trust is the outcome you're seeking in any relationship, especially in these kind of high-performing teams. So vulnerability is just the way to peel back the layers until you expose trust. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like the fastest way to get to trust is by opening yourself up and being vulnerable. I'm not sure. I think so. I think if Brené Brown was here, she'd probably say that that's true. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's true of every single group. I right. think that maybe the fastest way to trust is in other ways. Mm-hmm. I think a big challenge is very often a way to find trust. Like, you know, these reality TV shows when you put a bunch of strangers together yep. under a very challenging situation, mm-hmm. you start to find out, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where people's weaknesses are and, yep. and where their chinks in the armor are. So I think a combination of having a big challenge, mm-hmm. as we discussed in the beginning, yep. which is going to have the right kind of people participate anyway and then giving those people the opportunity to be vulnerable sets the stage for that trust to develop. I think what's really interesting is over the four things that you mentioned, having a big, scary, motivating mission, alignment, that mindset of mastery, and this idea of psychological safety, we're talking about teams, but you didn't talk at all about the skill set of the people. It's really interesting that it's all about the context that these people are in and not about, oh, you need, you know, if we're talking about product teams, you need someone who's amazing at this specific hard skill. That's never actually the case. We never heard from anybody that we interviewed, and we interviewed several hundred over the course of the books, but specifically for product leadership, maybe Mm -hmm. 100 product leaders. 
we never ever heard somebody say, well, you need a good UX person or right. you need a great engineer. They hire for contribution. They hire for culture. Mm-hmm. They very rarely worry about skills specifically. Now, that, again, is contextual, right? If you're right. building a rocket ship, you want a great astrophysicist. You want to make sure you have those skills on the team, but you also want the right astrophysicist. You want that person who's going to culturally fit with what you're trying to do, who believes mm-hmm. in that crazy goal of yours. And also is going to be a good team member. They're going to show up thinking team first, thinking, how do I have a relationship with the people on my team that they can trust me? And Mm -hmm. when things do go wrong, do I have their back and will they have my back or are they going to turn on me? Have you seen any of the people over the course of your career, the people that you interviewed, talk about how they have been vulnerable to outside the high performance team to like another team that maybe they don't work with as well? I think as a product person on raw product team, you know, we're okay, maybe good at building that within our individual teams. But maybe when it comes to working with someone else's team or with sales or with marketing who has a set of expectations that we may or may not meet for whatever reason, how have you seen people bridge that gap? Yeah, so at a structural level that looks like cross-functionality, instead mm-hmm. of having a product team that's representing, say, UX, design, engineering, development, mm-hmm. data, you would also actually include sales. If you're in a regulated industry, you might mm-hmm. include legal in that. We saw with the teams at John Hancock, they actually put a regulator on the team. On the product team? On the product team, because in a highly regulated industry, mm-hmm. that actually makes the difference. Who would have thought to put a lawyer on a product team? But it actually makes sense in certain industries. Mm-hmm. And I think in a high growth environment like Drift is in, sales should be on the product team. I mean, DC and I had this conversation as we walked in this morning. We're like, I don't see any reason why sales should be mm-hmm. sitting by themselves. I think sales should be embedded with the product teams because that's where they offer the most value. And that's where they're going to be able to come back to the product team and say, look, this is what we see at the call face. Mm-hmm. Product doesn't have to listen to every single thing. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, implement everything right. that sales comes up. But if they're hearing those things, they can start seeking patterns. They can start hearing mm-hmm. for the obvious opportunities right. and the obvious risks as well. Mm-hmm. It's probably not happening as often as we would like to see, but we mm-hmm. are starting to see some pretty bold organizations having cross-functionality mean every aspect of the business, not just every aspect of product. Right. That's really interesting. I didn't thought about that. I think when you do that, you still maintain the connections of all the salespeople with each other and their discipline. So you have some way to... Right, right. So the structure for those who are listening and wondering, how do you actually do this? So Mm -hmm. sales doesn't sit with each other. Mm -hmm. They sit in the cross-functional product environment Mm -hmm. where you would have one UX person or two engineers and mm-hmm. one researcher, etc. They are all sitting in those product teams. Structurally, physically, that's where they live. When it comes to organizing themselves mm-hmm. every week or on the Slack channel, they are talking to sales as well. Yeah. So every week sales gets together and has mm-hmm. an all-hand sales meeting. They have their sales channels on Slack, which they're communicating on. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that sales have stopped talking to each other. It just means that they're much more embedded in the product experience, which if you're a customer, think about it for a second. You don't care where sales sits as long as they're delivering value to you. So that's where this all comes around to. You know, we talked a little bit about it in the talk this morning, Mm -hmm. which is when you start organizing around the customer or the customer problem specifically, you stop thinking about functional organizations. You Mm -hmm. start to only think about where is value delivered and how do we deliver that? Right. It's also making me think about, I was having a conversation yesterday with a member of our customer success team, and she was asking, how can I be better about giving feedback and how can I find the right people and how do we maintain that as we're growing as a company? And what this makes me think of is cutting down the length of time and the burden of communication because we're all just together. Yeah. You know, you get rid of that game of telephone that you have to play with, you know, why is product building what they're building when this is what I'm hearing on the phone? Yeah, because the tensions in an organization are always going to be between functional groups. Right. 
or between product groups that have overlapping interests with the same customer. Mm -hmm. So that's the job of the product leader ultimately is identifying where those gaps are and then Mm -hmm. making sure that they are destroyed or smashed by poking holes in them. For instance, let's say you've got a data group. Do you have a data group? A nascent. A nascent data group, Mm -hmm. which is generally what's happening in tech. Most companies are starting to think about like, well, we need a group of people to think about what's going to happen with data. Well, those people should be embedded, but then those people should also be talking to each other. Well, mm-hmm. how do you do that? Well, you get together that group as a guild or a community of practice, mm-hmm. and you let them have a conversation on a regular basis about what their technology does and how it could be useful to the customer, mm-hmm. while at the same time doing their job, their day-to-day, how do we deliver value right. to the customer using this particular data insight? That's a great segue because as someone who's new to this product leader role, I have a lot of questions and I'm rereading that <laughs> book again. And the thing I was curious about is, so you did interview so many, you said 100, more than 100? Yeah, I think we actually list 75 in the book, but the reality was we interviewed a lot more, uh, just a lot, most of the interviews didn't make it. So when talking to those people, what were the consistent, like were there any patterns and consistent sort of traits between them? So not just like what they're doing as product leaders, but who they are and what makes them good at their jobs? None. Really? For me, it's quite refreshing because I, mm-hmm. I was in the same mindset as you. I was right. hoping that there was a set of characteristics that, and we do list them in the book, like these are the things we see regularly. Like these are mm-hmm. the, the buckets of things in terms of behavior or characteristics that we see across those leaders, never mind product leaders, leaders in general. Right. However, in terms of style and personality, I think it's kind of freeing to realize that it takes all types. Mm -hmm. A good way to think about this is, you know, I think of statesmanship as a quietly spoken man called Nelson Mandela. Thoughtful, poetic, Mm -hmm. philosophical, gentle. That's not the leader that everybody would think about when they think of statesmanship. Maybe they think Mm -hmm. of like a a hard-nosed person like a Churchill. There's lots of different ways to get to this leadership role Mm -hmm. it takes all types so if you're thinking about that stuff it's kind of nice to know that your personality is almost perfect because it's not about personality it's more about are you empathetic are you able to return trust to the people that work with you in a way that allows them to make good decisions those are the characteristics and those are sometimes learned things you know we're all humans and we could all potentially be good athletes in some sport Mm -hmm. we don't know until we try we don't know until we practice that skill until we throw that ball a hundred times or you know Mm -hmm. pull back that bow a thousand times we really wouldn't know until we actually did practice those things so practicing leadership is not a genetic personality thing it's oh i need to be those things regardless of my personality how can i go and develop them right Interesting. So if you had to pick from all the stuff that you learned while you were writing that book and doing that research, the first thing a new person in product leadership role should work on, like what's the first thing that you see people struggling with that they should just figure out how to do? So I think decision-making is probably more of a symptom of trust than Mm -hmm. something that precedes it. But what are your thoughts around how you make decisions? Do you think that now that you're in a leadership position, you have to make all the decisions or that decision-making is the role of leader? We see well-matured leaders giving up decision-making powers almost entirely. Mm -hmm. They're just into building a team of trusting individuals Mm -hmm. that trust each other and work with each other to make really good decisions because decisions are the velocity of an organization. Mm -hmm. Things get stuck in the decision-making process. Things don't get done. The currency that we live by is decisions. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do tomorrow? What are we going to do first? How are we going to prioritize these things? Mm -hmm. Which of these things has the biggest value to the customer or to the organization. All of those decisions, however big or small they are, need to be made at some point. And so learning how to be a good decision maker Mm -hmm. is really important. 
and teaching people and yourself to be a good decision maker is important. And I think one of the aspects of that is we like to believe that we can make perfect decisions all the time. Mm-hmm. And the answer is no. You, right, yeah. <laughs> you probably make good decisions maybe 10% of the time, yeah. if that. And so relying on the idea that you're going to be perfect every time is, is mm. heartbreaking because it never really ends up that way. It's right. And I would imagine that slows down your decision making anyway. If you're the burden that you're putting on yourself as someone who makes decisions is to make a perfect decision, you're never going to make them because you're going to agonize over them yeah. constantly. Yeah. I mean, a good example is I've just launched a new co-working business and I know nothing about co-working mm-hmm. and I'm making terrible decisions all along <laughs> the way. And, okay. uh, and I know that getting the business up and running and experiencing those mistakes firsthand mm-hmm. is going to teach me way faster and get me traction way quicker than if I try and read all the research papers and do all the data analysis before I take the first step. It could be years before I do the first thing then. Right. And, I, and and that's really not going to help me. Mm-hmm. Learning a little, you know, it, yeah, it'll cost me a little bit of time and money making mistakes, but it'll cost me more time to delay right. the decision. Yeah, that makes sense. So how would you sort of package up like the high performance teams piece and the being a high performance product team leader? Like what are your advice for people who are listening or watching for what they can like one or two things they should just go back to their teams and try out? So I know you mentioned better ways to break the ice and build vulnerability, but like what are some tips that people can use just today, even if they're not, you know, the leader on their team? Something that's really simple to do is how well do you know each other? Mm -hmm. I think we probably superficially know each other. Oh, we know where we, each other, where we live and maybe that we are in this relationship or we have this many kids or a dog or whatever. Mm-hmm. What else do you know about that person? What, what do you know about the things that really bother them or the things that have been their trials over the years? Do you know that they've got a sick friend or partner that they're dealing with at home, mm-hmm. um, that they recently lost a loved one? Those kinds of things we never really take time to deal with. And I think there's probably a little bit of that old-fashioned mentality of like, well, it's got nothing to do with you. Right. Because I'm at work and... Yeah, I've just never found that to be the case. I think Mm -hmm. people working together, there's no difference than people doing anything together. People are people. Humans Mm -hmm. are humans and they they want to make connections. That's like we're a social animal and we really benefit from being social with each other. And so the, the opportunities for us to share those things, given any environment, are just as valuable as, say, doing it over a beer. Create that opportunity. Say, look, I I want you to go and discover something about your teammate that wouldn't ordinarily come up in conversation and spend as much time as you want and then come back to me and, like, let's talk about what we found out and Mm -hmm. how we relate to each other and what we disagree on and what we don't like about each other and let's talk about that stuff. That's how we're going to build trust. Right. Yeah, we use a tool called Predictive Index to do sort of personality typing and I find that we have uh, one of the teams I'm on. There's a person who will know who he is if he ever listens to this, who we have both are extremely dominant. And once we looked at our patterns and we said, oh, this is why we're always arguing, even mm. when we're having a nice chat and we're agreeing with each other, it just sounds like arguing and it stresses our team out. So we had to figure out how to how we could uncover that and work around it. And that's one of the tools that we've used yeah. as well. And I think that's really the core of what we're talking about is Mm-hmm. Do we know each other well enough that we can talk about that openly? Right. Or are we just making a whole bunch of assumptions about each other? Right. Like, I think you might be dominant. Mm-hmm. I think I might be dominant. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're arguing. But I'm not going to say that because I don't know that. But things like the predictive index or disk tools or anything, yeah. really, they're just a conversation starter. I wrote a book about design sprints. Design mm-hmm. sprints are just a trick, a parlor trick to get people talking to each other. So all of the exercises in the design sprint are actually exercises that we would use in this context, Mm -hmm. breaking the ice and and connecting people and Mm -hmm. having them overcome certain things. So for instance, doing assumption storming. Mm -hmm. Have people do an assumption storming test 
and find out who is using those assumptions to drive their decision making mm -hmm. and which of those assumptions are potentially dangerous. Because they might think that those assumptions are perfectly acceptable, that they're right. part of the normal culture of the organization or that mm -hmm. they, they did it at their previous company. So they, why shouldn't they do it here? Mm -hmm. And they're not maliciously assuming things. They're just right. walking into it with any other bias like mm -hmm. or that they might have. So all of the exercises in the design sprint are really just parlor tricks to get people to talk to each other. And once you've done that kind of mm -hmm. thing, you go, oh, my God, I... I actually don't really know what we were working on, but I know all the people that I work with much better now, and I feel right. like we could actually do anything together. Yeah, I agree. One of the small things that we started doing as a team as well was we had a couple of instances where we weren't all on, we realized probably too late that we weren't exactly on the same page. And so we've now started this new little cultural thing on this one team where, all right, you draw it and I'll draw it. And then we're going to show each other the drawings of it. And we're going to see if it's the same. Because yeah. if it's not, then we haven't actually yep. communicated whatever it is that we're working on. So that's something, another little trick that we've been using to try to There's suss a, out the differences. That's right. That's actually one of the design sprint exercises. Everybody has to draw a pink elephant. Right. Yeah, and you'd think that that would be relatively yeah, consistent. Super easy. But and some yeah. people draw a, chi a child's toy, and yeah. other people will draw an actual elephant that's pink. And, mm -hmm. and you're like, well, that's not the same thing. You know? Yeah. We did it for an Excel file. Like we were building an export, and we literally sat down and we drew out what this Excel file would look like because we wanted to make sure we knew exactly what we were doing. <laughs> Again, Richard, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. The talk was amazing. Everyone should buy the product leadership book. And you have another book coming out? I'm working on a book more specifically about high-performing teams right. because that's a part of the book that resonated with a lot of folks. And yeah. and what I've realized is that as I spread my research a little bit wider than product, I started mm -hmm. to see like the Formula One teams. I spent right. some time with them in Barcelona and some of the other weird little retail organizations that, I, that mm -hmm. I, I have had an opportunity to work with. Just because they're in tech doesn't mean they're doing things differently. They're all actually very similar. I'll tell you this one example. There's a, mm -hmm. an organization or company that has three stores in a small town. They all do different things, but they're owned by the same people. Mm -hmm. And the people that work at one store sometimes work at another store and they kind of go between. And these yeah. very, very high-performing team that does this work. And we're having an event at this coffee shop, essentially, that they own. Mm -hmm. And the guys from the other store who have got nothing to do with the coffee shop, just walked over and started helping. And that's a non-verbal signal to say, I've got your back. I can see that you're overwhelmed with this right. event that you're doing. And I'm going to start folding and organizing chairs and, you know, cleaning up stuff without mm -hmm. being asked. That's the kind of high-performing team stuff that you start to see in non-tech things is mm -hmm. people are just signaling to each other what's important and what's not and right. how to then create a better outcome. And that's that's what I want to write about. I want to write about what does it look like for everybody, not just for mm. products right. or digital or tech. What does it look like if you're a high-performing team in any industry or any capacity? Mm -hmm. Cool. So when that's out, we'll, we'll talk again. it on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much again. Really appreciate you coming. Everyone who's listening, I need new reviews just for me now that I'm on my own podcast. So hit me up with the, I'll take five stars. I'm not even going to pull the six-star game on this one, but please leave a review and we'll put Richard's information in the show notes. Cool. Thanks, Maggie. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.